everyone, and welcome to another edition of Be Her Talk with Selena Hill, an award-winning talk show that adds a taste of hip-hop, AOC, and spice to unflavored news. Each Sunday, I discuss race, politics, and culture from an unapologetic Black millennial perspective, and we give you the opportunity to be heard. So leave comments on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and we will read them throughout this show. Now, I'm super excited to be here with you all today to discuss the biggest stories of the week from the indictment of four former police officers involved in George Floyd's arrest and death to Melinda and Bill Gates divorcing to Caitlyn Jenner's governor's race in California. We have a lot to discuss there. And then later on in the show, in honor of Mother's Day, I'll speak to a medical expert and a public health advocate about the Black maternal health crisis, which makes Black women up to four times as likely as white women to die from pregnancy or childbirth. Now, please support Be Her Talk by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash beherdtalk. Your support through a small donation will help us to continue to support and amplify the issues that you care about. So without further ado, let's kick things off with the news roundup. This is a segment where we give a rundown of the stories that made you laugh, cry, or go on a profanity-laced Twitter rant. For this segment, I'm joined by Evan Mastronardi, who is the co-founder of Let's Not Be Trash and a Bronx organizer for Rank the Vote NYC. How's it going, Evan? Great, Selena. Happy to be on Be Heard and happy Mother's Day. Yes, happy Mother's Day to all those who are celebrating, remembering a mother or who have been a mother in some capacity. We also have with us Damon Stubbs, who is the founder of the Faith and Justice Initiative, Conscious and Pentecost, and a former executive leader at the New York Urban League Young Professionals. How's it going, Damon? Hey, what's going on, Selena? It is good to be here. It's good to have you back. All right, so we're kicking things off with the news roundup, talking about the Department of Justice announcement that four former Minneapolis police officers will face federal charges in connection to the murder of George Floyd. The DOJ alleges that the ex-officers violated George Floyd's rights when they restrained him back in May 2020. The federal indictment alleges that Derek Chauvin deprived Floyd of his right to be free from unreasonable seizure, including unreasonable force by a police officer as he knelt on his neck for nearly 10 minutes. The other officers, two other officers were charged in connection to their failure to intervene, while all four officers were charged with failing to give Floyd medical attention. Now, their joint trial is expected later this summer. The federal indictment comes just weeks after Derek Chauvin was convicted of state murder charges and Floyd's death. Evan, what's your response to the federal indictment of all four officers? As always, it's progress. And as always, these things move slow. But I do think this sets a good precedent because one of the biggest problems that enables officers who abuse their duty is the enablers around them. Mind you, five officers arrive at a scene and the police tactics are always to de-escalate. And five officers here did the exact opposite. And as it escalated, no one intervened. This is a problem we have where officers feel less empowered to intervene, not even that knowing that any of these officers wanted to, 
But now, may, hopefully, more officers will feel empowered to intervene when someone else abuses power or will be a deterrent to abuse power in the first place. Damon, want to get your response to the indictment. And do you think this is a sign of change when it comes to holding police accountable in some capacity? I mean, I, I definitely was excited to see A.G. Garland really do what I believe the Justice Department is supposed to be doing, which is helping to protect the civil rights of every American. And him doing it ahead of the state indictment on the four officers, I think is very important um, as well. Um, I think that this does send a message. The message is that all because you are an officer in the line of duty, you are not the end all be all all powerful, that you will be held accountable for aiding and abetting and taking um, part in this type of violence and this type of criminal activity. So I definitely think that this is a good step in the right direction, but we need law. This is good, but there's not always going to be an AG Garland. There's not always going to be an administration like the one we have now. There's not always going to be an attorney general who will feel like they are um, empowered or, or have an appetite to do something like this. So we need law to be passed. We need the Justice and Policing Act to be passed. We need something like that to ensure that these type of changes. This type of appetite is something that becomes common, but at least it sends out a message to other officers that, nah, you're not going to be backed up with this one. So, Evan, Damon says that this sends a very strong message to officers. Um, do you think this represents a changing of the tide, if you will? I mean, I agree with all of Damon's points. And I, and I do think this is what it looks like to have an actual attorney general, not just someone who is as some call a stooge, just put in place to be loyal to the leader, which was Donald Trump. Like I said, this states, this creates precedent, but as Damon said, this creates precedent really in just one narrow way. This is a federal indictment. States still have immense power for their own policies, precincts, police departments. This is a systemic problem. So while this will be a deterrent the only way to truly prevent these types of brazen abuses of power is to actually dismantle that structure, create absolutely no incentive and no uh, system of impunity from the state level, from the local level, from all levels of law enforcement. And that's why not only should the Justice for George Floyd Act be passed, but the Breathe Act should be passed from uh, Ilan Omar because that will invest money in communities and in restructuring uh, public safety away from armed police. Absolutely. Well, I could not agree more. We definitely need to pass the George Floyd Policing Act. We need police reform right now. And obviously we need to continue to fight to defund the police and eventually abolish a system that has continued to uphold uh, oppression, especially to black and brown Americans. So without further ado, we are going to just switch gears to talk about the Melinda and Bill Gates divorce, which pretty much caught us all by surprise after 27 years of marriage. Now, they are the two of the world's most powerful and wealthiest philanthropists. For the past two decades, they have pushed for causes ranging from education to global health through their namesake foundation. The couple, along with billionaire investor Warren Buffett, 
also founded the Giving Pledge, which is a campaign encouraging wealthy people to give away the bulk of their money. The two just won't be splitting their, their vast fortune, uh, which was last estimated at around $124 billion. The same day that they announced their divorce, Bill Gates transferred stock worth up to $2.4 billion to Melinda. Um, and on top of that, I think what was even more surprising is that they didn't have a prenup. Um, so shout out to Melinda right now, who is uh, definitely racking up. Um, I was personally disheartened to hear the news of their divorce, especially after 27 years and three children. And I was really shocked that they didn't have a prenup. Evan, how did the news take you? Uh, at first, to be honest, I just didn't care. Um, I just don't really care about people's personal lives. Uh to, to more so, um, less so than a lot of other people do. But actually, the more I think about it, this may be an unpopular opinion, but I think this is kind of a good thing. And that's because sometimes I see uh, these marriages that go for so long among very wealthy people. It may be loveless, it may not be happy, and they just keep going. It's of convenience, it's of a title. I actually think that this shows some maturity. I think this shows that, okay, we're, we're both rich. We could have stayed together and maybe it would be better PR. Maybe it would look better. But there's something money can't buy, right? And that's, that's the love. That's the chemistry. That's the interpersonal connection. And if at some point that isn't there and, and, and uh, is being a healthy, fulfilling relationship, you should do something about it. It doesn't matter how rich you are. So I actually think this is a, a good thing in some ways for an example it sets. Other thing. Please give some of those billions now. We don't need to wait till people pass away. There are people who need it now. Flint still ain't got good water. Well, thank you for that, Evan. So, you know, Damon, there's a, 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 a interview from 1997 that just recently surfaced showing Bill Gates saying that him and Melinda actually had a, a contract saying that he could spend a long weekend with his ex at least once a year. If if you were married, would you and like allow your partner or, you know, not even just allow your partner, would you agree to um, having some type of stipulation where you guys could, you know, have long sleepaways with another person and different sexual encounters? How do you feel about that? Oh, Selena. Oh. <laughs> um, me personally. OK. I wouldn't be for it. That to me personally, I, I'm not sure if I would want my spouse out there uh, with her former boo chilling for a weekend uh, somewhere. That's me. That's me. But, um, but, but Damon, just one caveat. If your spouse is a billionaire, yeah, would you sign that stipulation? I, I, I could not because... As you can see, I mean, that is not what the marriage is going to be built upon. It's not built upon the billions. It's going to be built upon the covenant. I know people out there saying, you lying. You know, you're going to have. But seriously, though, I mean, that that is something deep to welcome someone else into your intimate space. Um, and so that's going to be a no go for me. Uh, <laughs> but billions are not. And as we can see, whether with contracts in place, with billions of dollars, it still ended in divorce. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. Evan? Uh, absolutely not. And really, I, I don't care how much money this person has. I'm not, I'm not going to be happy. I'm not. I, 
A lot of people always think capital buys everything in this country. It can't buy that. It can't buy a happy marriage. It can't buy your feelings and emotions and being able to be happy in a marriage. So no, I don't care. And also, I could be rich by myself. Please, I don't. Okay. It, I, don't I, I don't. I don't really care about what it could add to my life financially. That's not what I really look for in a partner. So no, absolutely not. It is nothing but messy. Okay, it just makes it messier. Well, best of luck to Bill and Melinda. Um, I, I don't, honestly, I don't, even though I, I feel sad for their marriage or the end of it, they have so much money, they'll be fine. Uh, moving things along, the Biden administration announced that it would su support wavering international intellectual property protections for coronavirus virus vaccines. This move comes after pressure from Democrats like Senator Elizabeth Warren, who stated that this is a humanitarian issue, and I quote, not a time to be protecting, protecting the multi-billions of dollars in profits for these companies. Warren also told Yahoo Finance, we need to be out there getting those vaccines into the arms of as many human beings as possible, not doing what a handful of already billionaire drug companies want us to do in order to protect their profits. Now, Western pharmaceutical companies, on the other hand, and, and let me just add, many of them received government support to develop these vaccines. They strongly oppose the transfer of intellectual property to make them. They say poorer companies, countries, will be slow to set up manufacturing capacity and compete for scarce supplies, thus hurting production. The pharmaceutical industry also argues that wavering patent protections for vaccines discourages the industry from taking risk and investing in creating new drugs. This comes after pharmaceutical companies working on COVID vaccines reported sky high profits during the crisis. Pfizer for one, generated revenue of $3.5 billion in the first quarter of 2021 alone. And so far, vaccines have gone overwhelmingly to richer nations, which scooped up the contracts very, very early. Damon, do you support the Biden administration's decision to waive the intellectual property rights for the vaccine? Overall, I do support it, but to a certain extent, this may give me some backlash. I do believe that I'm not an IP specialist, but I do believe that if we are going, if the administration is going to do that, it must do it responsibly and in a way that ensures that all the intellectual property, which was used during this process, uh, does not give our adversaries around the globe a leg up, i.e. China and Russia and others. I, I'm, I'm trying to think through, is there a way to get to vaccine equity uh, without having to give away all of the insight into these vaccines? I think lifting these patents, waiving them may be a, quick, a fast track, right? But is it the best strategic thought out plan? I don't know. I'm all for more developing nations having access to the vaccine and us as a more powerful nation making sure that that happens. But how that goes, uh, I'm not sure if it's, hey, world, this is exactly how we did it. Here's all of our technology. Because the technology that we use is not the same technology China and Russia use and others use. I would just say it needs to be done 
responsibly. Uh, and all because I give you the recipe doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to know how to exactly cook it and do it well. So it's more, I think, than just lifting and waving patterns. I think we have to look at it a little more closer than that. And uh, I am kind of also concerned with adversaries getting their hands on it. Well, you know, to your point, the Biden administration is also very concerned about that intellectual property. Uh, the sharing of it could hand sensitive U.S. biopharmaceutical technology to China and Russia, like you just mentioned, Damon, mm -hmm. and actually damage the United States competitive advantage over China. Evan, is this something that you're also concerned about? At the end of the day, it's, it's capitalism versus the global welfare. And I think global welfare should be a supreme in that case. So I understand what Damon's saying, but I also feel like I, I still believe that the, the global benefit for all these nations, including developing ones, and yes, China and Russia and other countries, outweighs the, the possibility, but not, I would say, likelihood that somehow the way these vaccines were put together will will hurt us anyway in safety. And if it's and if it's just about uh, competitiveness, let's be competitive, but with other things besides people's health. Let's be competitive, but without it being about how people get the drugs and medicine they need. America, if America is truly a competitive country and innovator, we could find other ways to be competitive. Damon, I definitely want to get your response to what Evan just said, a little pushback. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, I would tell Evan, it's a little more than just capitalism here, right? It's, it's, it's national security and it's also uh, technology. Uh, and I understand what Evan is saying about people's health and being competitive, but I think people are thinking about being competitive. I'm not sure what the pharmaceutical companies are thinking, but I think maybe those within government who have concerns may be thinking that the competitive edge is beyond just being the richest. I think the competitive edge has to do with sensitive technology, uh, pro uh, intellectual property, which can be misused, mishandled. And, and you do want to keep an edge upon your adversaries on all things. So my final conclusion would just say, can we think of a way to have vaccine equity, get the vaccine to people without giving away all of the intellectual property? Can there be a collaborative a collaboration of some sorts where maybe they have some but don't have it all and we provide the rest or something. But I think it's, it's, it's very important that we are sensitive around it, you know, around intellectual right. property. So, uh, my, my just quick response to that is my concern with that though is that if we like give 80% but not an important 20% of the rollout, that it will slow down the process. I think it's either we give it and we give it in full and we give it as efficiently and and in, in its complete way as we can to make sure the rollout is fast and efficient or we don't do it or we are selective in who we give it to, which will cause other problems. I think uh, omitting certain information or not cooperating with certain information can hinder the effect, efficacy of the rollout. Well, well, hold on, David, because we, we do have to keep in movement. I do want to say this, that COVID-19 infection rates in wealthy countries have dropped as the vaccination rates increase this year. But infections are rising in 36 countries 
including in India, daily cases are skyrocketing to nearly 400,000 a day. Do you think this is a matter of ignoring, you know, some people's health in some countries so that the pharmaceuticals can make money? I can't speak for the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, from what I've heard from at least this administration, uh, this administration do believe in a global community from what I've heard. And they understand that if the world's not safe, we're not safe. You know, with all the different variants, I think that um, I'm not concerned whether or not the intentions is to keep some people sick and some people well, because in a global society, if half the world is still sick, we are still not safe with all the different variants. So I don't I don't necessarily think that is it. I think that it, it, it has to, all because we give someone the recipe. Again, there are concerns around the materials needed. All because they have it does not mean that they will also be able to just produce it the way we've produced it because it's only also a limited capacity of the stuff you need, the materials you need for the vaccine to make it work. So I, I do think that we need to be concerned, we need to help, but we need to think through around how that strategically looks like. And it has to be something maybe than just giving it all away. Gotcha. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you, Damon. I do want to talk about another story, Jake Paul and his antics and fiasco type family. So we saw the promotional fight uh, between championship boxer Floyd Mayweather and YouTuber Lo Logan Paul escalated when his brother, Jake Paul, uh, decided to come up to Floyd Mayweather and taunt him. Then they had a back and forth and he literally took his hat. Let's play the clip. All right, hang on. This, yeah. I want you out of the way for me that was a lot. Evan, uh, was this spectacle for pure entertainment? And do you think it helps or hurts the sport of boxing? Um, I don't. I wouldn't say it hurts it. I mean, because most people know that's a joke, that this whole thing is a spectacle. Floyd Mayweather, he has many issues I do not like as a person, but he is the greatest boxer in my lifetime. He is undefeated for a reason. And I think a lot of people know going into it, it's for the fame because there's a reason he's undefeated. Um, I mean, when I saw this, I'm like, I remember this in a Bronx public school in sixth grade recess. Gotcha hat. Like, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what he thought he was doing there, but maybe he doesn't think he'll perhaps win. So this is what will he will be able to get on Floyd. But aside from that, it's nonsense. Shout out to Jake Logan for taking it back to third grade. Um, after this whole fiasco happened, he actually tattooed the words gotcha hat on his leg. Damon, is this enticing you to want to watch this match more or less? Absolutely. I, I really have, I don't have a lot of interest anyway, so I really don't care. Um, but going back to the schoolyard, people who do stuff like that are probably usually the ones that are most nervous. You know, they have to do something, you know, they have to, because if they get whipped, at least they had that first moment of in the spotlight, like, yes, you know, my name, gotcha hat. Ah, 
he might get dropped. He probably will get dropped, you know, but at least he got your hat. You know, you're going to remember that. So it's a promotional event. You know, this is his way. He wants to be known more than just getting dropped. And in this case, he wants to be known for getting your hat. So, you know, he, he a little nervous, you know, so. Shout out to you, Damon, for that analysis on schoolyard bullying. Uh, we appreciate that. Ian Clemens left a comment via LinkedIn saying Jake Logan is an irrelevant child who uses his childish antics to get attention. Doesn't Floyd Mayweather do the same thing? Um, okay, on that note, we do want to just keep it moving. Before we wrap the news roundup, it was announced earlier, um, I think it was, what, a few weeks ago, Bill de Blasio said the Big Apple will fully reopen on J July 1st. And now New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is announcing that subway service in New York City will return to a 24-7 schedule on May 17th and that most COVID-19 capacity restrictions will end across the tri-state beginning May 19th. That includes restaurants, food services, gyms, etc. Evan, are you planning for a hot boy summer? Because it looks like everything is open. Yeah, a hot boy summer. Certainly not what Chet Hanks, I won't even repeat what Chet Hanks thinks the summer will be. We didn't say but, a, a, a white boy summer. No, I know. No, I know. I, I'm, I'm saying I'm glad you said the correct version of that. Um, look at look at Cuomo. Cuomo's going to do everything to get in people's good grace. He said, you know, July 1st, I'm going to do May 19th because he's trying to you know, I, I see that probably as more political move, and he never liked de Blasio because of all the things he's going through. But, you know, I think a lot of people will like to get back to doing what they were uh, doing uh, at night in the street and wherever um, more freely. Uh, but at the same time, I'm still a bit concerned for the people who don't believe in vaccinations because I think new strains can be created and it can still be passed on amongst people who have that belief. Damon, are you trying to have a hot boy summer? Or are you concerned about the vaccinations too? You know, I'm fully vaxxed. Okay. And so, you know, amen. I'm fully vaxxed. So I've been excited to really get out. I've been kind of been out, but responsibly. But this is, of course, is going to bring a whole nother level. So hopefully, you know, it's going to be a, a good turn up in Harlem and, and around the boroughs of New York City. But I must say, Selena, I am concerned while we're reopening there's going to be a lot of places we're going to go to we can't find, uh, especially a lot of black businesses, uh, because they shut down. So when we talk about reopen, uh, reopen for who? Because some folks ain't never coming back. <laughs> and so mm. the spots we were open to last year, we ain't going to be able to find this year. So mm. that is a good point. So I think we all need to brace ourselves before we get up to have a hot anything because COVID did not just magically disappear, even though people are vaccinated to Evan's point, not everyone is vaccinated. And, you know, to Damon's point, it's, we're not just returning to the norm just quite yet. But thank you so much, Evan and Damon for joining me for the news roundup. Appreciate it, your commentary and perspective. We're thank actually, you, Selena. You got thank it. You, Selena, congratulations on your rebranding. Thank yes, you. Congratulations. <laughs> All right. So now we're going to keep things moving to the, the stories that made me say, really? The first story that made me question the state of humanity itself is the fact that Trump supporters are selling a dildo with his face on it. 
Pictures of the infamous Trump sex toy have recently surfaced on Facebook, giving us all flashbacks to the four years when America was the actual epicenter of hell. I didn't think this needed to be said until now, but when we said F Trump, we didn't mean literally. Guys, really? Secondly, Hot Girl Summer may be canceled since Megan Thee Stallion is booed up with New York rapper and songwriter Party and JT is with Little Uzi Vert. That's right, one half of the City Girl duo has found a pint-sized goth-esque alternative rapper love and we the public are not amused. Now, as a single millennial woman, I am in fact hot girl adjacent and like many of my peers, ready to be vaxxed, waxed, and outside. However, the leaders of the hot girl movement seem to be confused. Ladies, we cuff in the winter, duh. And if we just so happen to fall in love in the summer, our partners are supposed to be kind, fine, and waiting to pick us up in the car. Really, JT? You're doing it wrong, sis. Lastly, Former Georgia State Representative Vernon Jones was verbally annihilated by scholar Dr. Mark Lamont Hill on his new show, Black News. Jones made it clear that he would ban critical race theory from being taught in Georgia schools if he's elected governor. But get this, he doesn't even know what it is, which of course is on brand for black Republicans. Well, Republicans in general. Um, so when pressed to explain, Jones could not explain why he would want to stop our educational system to finally take on the responsibility of teaching about race and racism and how it's a problem in America. Let's play the clip. But I would think oh, because you are okay. going to make your you're going to make you're going to make as an as, as an executive order a ban of something. I would think that you would have okay. a definition of it. You've told me what it does. You've mentioned Christopher okay. Columbus, which has nothing to do with critical race theory. Christo critical race theory. You asked me to answer your question. There's plenty of time. We can go three segments. We got all night. So well, we'll have all the time in the world, brother. I do want to answer. I didn't ask you for an editorial. I asked you to so, answer, and you went through editorial. And let me say this. Okay. First of all, okay. So, I'm on your so, show. So, so, so critical race theory. Me. I didn't ask to be on your show. Let's be clear. Now, I'll let you talk. Now, allow me to talk. You dial into me and ask but me you have to, to come answer on your question. show. You're not correct. So don't pull that card that this is your show because I got drafted. I didn't try for your team. You asked me to come on your show, so let's be clear <laughs> about it. You have not answered what is the critical race theory because no matter what I said, I told you I would ban it. That's it. Now you tell me what it is. Exactly. He's questioning Dr. Mark Lamont Hill to tell him what it is because he clearly could not define it himself. Really? Look, I wonder why a Trump-loving Southern Republican would ever want to ban something like that. Really? Now, just to keep things moving along, before we get to our main discussion with our featured guest, I actually want to take some time to make something make sense that does not make any sense. Right. It looks like our least favorite Kardashian Jenner may be going through a post midlife identity crisis. Yes, Caitlyn Jenner, who is running for governor of California, recently sat down with Sean Hannity on Fox News to talk about her campaign. At first glance, it's amusing that Fox viewers are now being asked to sit and even agree with a trans woman 
only because she has harmful rhetoric, lack of expertise, and a level of celebrity by way of her famous estranged family. But once the hilarity of social media commentary has settled, we are left to examine why Jenner's latest publicity stunt is actually very dangerous. You know, our last president re-exposed the visceral state of racism our country is in and just how deeply rooted the right, the far right is in the ideology of willful ignorance. Jenner's conservative stance on limiting trans children's rights to participate in sports, along with her affiliation and friendships with people who are disgusted by the homeless and her track record of chasing the limelight Limelight instead of principles should have us all questioning what gives someone with no political expertise the right to even run for office? Have we learned nothing from the four atrocious years we had under reality star turned president Donald Trump people? When will the circus of fame move from our government and back into the tabloids where it belongs? Someone, please. Please make it make sense. On that note, we're going to keep things moving right along to now our featured segment with our very special guests. Before we bring them up, let me just say this. While many of our many of us are honoring our mothers and the women who nurtured us on this day, the holiday almost feels hollow given the fact of the lack of policies and protections we have in our country that support mothers, especially black mothers. In the richest nation in the world, mothers are dying from birth-related complications at the rate, at the highest rate in the developed world. The situation is even more dire for black mothers. Across all socioeconomic and geographic lines, black women in the US are three to five times more likely to die from pregnancy, childbirth, or something related to the matter. And in states like Illinois, that risk is six times greater. Meanwhile, the COVID-19 health crisis has only exasperated disparities in the nation's health system. As a result, pregnant Black women in particular are reportedly enduring limited in-person prenatal care, limited support during labor, social isolation and increased economic anxiety. So to talk about the black maternal health crisis, I will be joined by Dana Sherrod, who, who serves as the birth equity and racial justice manager with the Public Health Alliance of Southern California, where she leads a series of racial equity initiatives with cherished futures for black moms and babies, a multi-sectored hospital quality improvement initiative to reduce black infant and maternal disparities in Los Angeles. Thank you for joining the show, Dana. Thank you so much for inviting me, Selena. I am so thrilled to uh, to be here and just a happy Mother's Day to all the black mamas, whether they first or not, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to you. We're happy to have you. you. We're also joined by Dr. Rachel Bond, a board certified cardiologist and the co-chair of the Women and Children's Committee of the Association of Black Cardiologists and System Director of Women's Health Heart Health at Dignity Health in Arizona. She is also the author of several review papers referencing maternal health, sex and gender differences um, that predominantly affect women, 
along with opinion pieces that address health equity and reducing health disparities. Thank you, Dr. Bond. Uh, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to this discussion and happy Mother's Day as well to all you out there. Absolutely. So Dana, I want to start the conversation by just asking, what is driving the crisis in maternal mortality and why does it disproportionately affect Black women? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a great question. And I think traditionally in this work, um, particularly when we think about medical interventions, even public health interventions, uh, traditionally they've been really focused on you know, maternal behaviors um, or comorbidities such as, you know, obesity, hypertension, uh, smoking, prenatal care. But actually, when we look at the research, we see that when we control for these, um, you know, behaviors or other risk factors, we still see that Black women and actually Black babies are still experiencing worse outcomes. And we also see that um, factors that are generally protective, things like income, education, aren't actually as protective for Black women. So if we want to really make change, we have to look at, you know, what the root cause of this issue is. And it really boils down to racism, um, you know, and in fact, racism and its impact on the black body has been studied by researchers. And, you know, one researcher describes the uh, phenomena of weathering, which is to say that black women, our bodies are aging faster. Uh, earlier onset of disease because of, you know, the overexposure to discrimination and racism really over the course of our lifespan. It's, it's cumulative effect. Um, and this is an experience that really goes and cuts across lines of our income, our education. So we can't out earn our way out of this. We can't out educate our way out of this issue, you know, which really, you know, brings to top of mind stories like, you know, Serena Williams story or Beyonce story. And so um, really we have to acknowledge the root um, of racism as the cause. Um, I also just want to call out that Black women have differential experiences in the healthcare system. Um, you know, experiences of not being listened to, ignored, you know, discriminated against, all of these things also are contributing to, you know, this inequity and this gap that we see, um, which is, you know, resulting in worse outcomes for Black moms and Black babies. Yeah, so uh, Kenneth Anthony Clark left a comment via LinkedIn, uh, the question uh, being, why do we see this disparity amongst Black women? Kenneth says simply, it's called privilege. Uh, Dr. Bond, I wanted to throw the same question at you, if you can just, again, speak to the factors driving this disparity and why so many Black women pregnant or, you know, after childbirth are dying. Absolutely. I mean, I honestly, I think Dana um, summarized it so nicely, but to really think about the core of this, when we think about race, for the most part in the healthcare spectra, we've been focusing a lot on the biology of race. And we know that that's honestly not the proper way. We know that it's more of a social construct because when you focus on the biology, you're undervaluing all of the other aspects, many of which Dana very nicely alluded to, which are those social determinants, the places where you grew up, the areas where you work, where you're currently living, that access to quality care, making sure that we have um, insurance one for one, but more importantly, making sure that these mothers are having the ability to get to the doctor, that they're trusting 
their relationship with the physicians and their healthcare practitioners. And we know that there have been multiple studies that have shown that utilizing other ancillary staff help, such as doulas or midwives in that level of trust. But beyond that, we know that there are some disparities in terms of coverage for those staff members um, when we think about it in the grand scheme of things, particularly in the United States. But I can't emphasize enough that at the core of all of this is racism. Um, even myself as a cardiologist, we know that cardio cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. It's disproportionately, however, affecting young women, specifically black women between the ages of 35 to 50. And what we're seeing is we know that at the end of the day, it has a lot more to do with that uh, prior experiences of oppression, racism, and we really have to handle that at the core if we want to move forward and actually change this epidemic that we're seeing. Absolutely. So um, very recently, Representative Cori Bush gave a riveting personal testimony of the racism she experienced while delivering both of her children on, on the congressional floor. I wanna get to that clip. We're only gonna play the clip where she talks about one child. I think it was her second child, uh, but she had a very traumatic experience. Let's get to the clip. I found out again, I was in preterm labor. The doctor told me that the baby was going to abort. I said, no, you have to do something. But he was adamant and he said, just go home, let it abort. You can get pregnant again because that's what you people do. My sister Kelly was with me. We didn't know what to do after the doctor left. So we saw a chair sitting in the hallway. My sister picked up the chair and she threw it down the hallway. Nurses came running from everywhere to see what was wrong. A nurse called my doctor and she put me on a stretcher. The next morning, my doctor came in and placed a cerclage um, on my uterus, and I was able to carry my baby, my daughter, my angel, who is now 20 years old. My son, who was saved, is now 21 years old. This is what desperation looks like, that chair flying down a hallway. This is what being your own advocate looks like. Every day, black women are subjected to harsh and, harsh and racist treatment during pregnancy and childbirth. Every day, black women die because the system denies our humanity. It denies us patient care. Yeah, you know, very heart-wrenching clip. We encourage everyone to actually watch that full uh, speech that she gave, very moving. And, you know, Dana, it reminds me of what happened to Serena Williams. She spoke very clearly about uh, she had to advocate for herself during child labor or else her life was also at risk. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, when we see these stories that's so disheartening, the, the answer, you I mean the, the question for me is always why? What is happening in the in those delivery rooms uh, that, and, and going wrong? Yeah, you know, I think there's a range of different things. You know, um, when you are in labor, it's a it's uh, just one singular episode, but within that, you know, episodic event or that one engagement, you know, there are so many things that have to go right. Uh, for a healthy outcome. And I want to acknowledge that oftentimes things do go right. Things do, uh, you know, end happily with healthy mom, healthy baby. Um, but we also want to acknowledge that the, the times that things don't go right. Um, and, you know, it can look a lot of different ways. You know, what we see from, you know, hearing folks in community, but also, you know, backed up in the literature is that, um, you know, people, especially Black people, have experiences of, you know, being ignored, uh, disrespected, uh, being left alone when you're in the middle of a crisis. Um, you know, I myself had two very traumatic 
um, labor and delivery experiences. Most recently with my two-year-old daughter, uh, you know, had a very a traumatic event, what we call a near miss. And, you know, I, I often tell folks that I was, you know, the exact patient that I am also advocating for. You know, I wasn't listened to by um, the OB, by the um, you know, anesthesiologist when I knew that something was wrong in my body. But I think it's this issue of not uh, trusting and listening and believing, you know, women, but especially black women, knowing that we know we are experts on our own bodies and we know when things don't feel right. So it's really a matter of you know, when we're not listened to and we're ignored, you know, I think we are seeing that these outcomes, um, these poor outcomes are happening. Dr. Bond, do you think these issues could be solved if uh, more uh, medical experts and doctors received implicit bias training, or perhaps if we diversified uh, the hospitals and just had more people of color on staff? Yeah, I know that's a wonderful question. And we know that data does show that without a doubt, that is the way to go. So one thing I want to address is that I have to believe that the vast majority of cases where we're ignoring these mothers are unconsciously being done. And what we really need to do is go as far back as medical school to really provide those tools for those medical students on what looks to be unconscious bias, which is implicit bias, and what is actually even conscious bias. Even in our medical textbooks to date, there are many references even suggesting that the use of, as an example, pain medication um, based on one skin color may be less to some effect versus th that of another person's based on their skin color as well. So they're needs to be modification at the level of medical school. One thing that I do feel very strongly is going to help in this field is diversifying the field of medicine. As it stands right now, when we go into medical school, it's about 50% women, 50% males. But when you actually look at the race and ethnicity breakup, that's extraordinarily lower. As we move further on into specialties, that actually, those rates decrease, even from a female perspective, but most notably from a race and ethnicity perspective. Using myself as an example, as a black female cardiologist, I only make up 2% of the national population. And we know that data shows that when your patient looks and can identify with their physician, there are usually better outcomes. But even to that same point, when you have a diversified field, your colleagues who are of a different race and ethnicity of yourself are also going to be more empathetic to managing these patients. So that's absolutely something that many of our medical societies are working on. Absolutely. So I was reading, Dana, that uh, the coronavirus pandemic has exasperated uh, the national maternal health crisis that we were already currently battling. Can you talk about um, what's happened since COVID? Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting because, you know, of course, as we've been going through, you know, the COVID pandemic, we've seen how this virus uh, has disproportionately impacted Black folks, you know, across the country, both in terms of uh, the case rates and the death rates, but also the economic burden. Um, and so when we're, you know, studies are starting to look at sort of what's happening for Black folks, um, particularly black, pregnant Black women and people uh, in the midst of COVID. And I just wanted to call out one study that was actually done in Philadelphia last year uh, that looked at 
uh, over 900 pregnant women and uh, black women actually reported a greater likelihood of you know, their employment negatively being impacted, uh, concerns about the economic burden from COVID and worries about their prenatal care, their birthing experience and even their postpartum needs. And so um, you know, going back to this issue of weathering um, and you know, stress, when we think about you know, how that shows up, this is a, a prime example. Uh, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has really created substantial stress for pregnant women, particularly black women, you know, layered into all the other stressors that we're already dealing with. Um, and so I, I think, you know, as as more and more data starts to become available, you know, I think we're going to see that. And I'm, I'm very interested, too, um, to hear from um, Dr. Bonte, you know, from my cardiologist perspective, because when I think about things like um, hypertension, you know, preeclampsia, um, any sort of uh, blood pressure uh, issues, I would be very interested to see what the data are going to show us. Um, but, you know, I wanted to also just quickly quote uh, something uh, that uh, an article that was written by two um, black physicians and they talk about black women sit squarely at the confluence of multiple systems of oppression and are experiencing a disproportionate light loss of life and livelihood in the COVID-19 era and I think that is um, such an accurate uh, summary about what we're what we're seeing. Dr. Bond did you want to answer that question? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, many people question why a cardiologist um, is involved in maternal health. And when we think about it, we know that the leading cause of mortality, which is death in the United States during pregnancy, as well as that one year postpartum is cardiovascular disease, such as a heart attack, a stroke, or any other condition that could affect the heart, including heart failure. And as Dana mentioned, um, we know that these mothers, especially black mothers, are disproportionately at higher rates of having issues with their blood pressure during pregnancy, issues with diabetes, premature pregnancies, um, and all of those can lead to future risks of cardiovascular disease. And that risk is not in the far future. It could very well be in the next five to 10 years. So we really emphasize the importance of collaboration. If you have a patient that has any of those risk factors, not only pre-pregnancy, during pregnancy and most notably in that postpartum period, we wanna make sure that we as cardiologists are in that care team. We're working together with the obstetrician and the gynecologist and of course the primary doctors who are so vital in making sure that these mothers don't get slipped through the cracks because one thing we have noticed is after the delivery, many of these mothers don't have that follow through. And that's what we're trying to prevent by really raising awareness, making sure that we all are working together as a collaborative team so we, you know, decrease these poor outcomes that we're seeing specifically in our African-American women. So, Jaracel, um, forgive me, I think I may be mispronouncing your name, uh, via LinkedIn left a comment that I thought was very interesting. She says, unfortunately, all skin folks aren't kin folks. Even though data suggests that the presence of someone that looks um, basically like us has a better outcome, we have to understand that this is a systemic problem. Racial competency training is not enough. We must be valued. And you know, to, to that point, I, I said this story, I don't know if I said it publicly on this show, but when I first started working in retail about 15 years ago, I saw how I had internalized 
so much systemic oppression and racism firsthandedly. And I remember that when the white customers were walking into our, our store, how I greeted them and how I was so attentive. But then when black folks came in, I noticed that I was more lax and I felt more comfortable. And I just, and I realized I was just like, why aren't I giving the people that look like me the same type of treatment? And it was like an awe, like awakening type moment. So, you know, to, to the, to the commenter's point, I agree. A lot of us don't ever get to that level of awareness or, you know, even understand the impacts of racism to that degree. Um, so sometimes it's conscious and subconscious on how we're treating people within our own community. Um, so, Dr. Bond, did you want to just comment on that? Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, and th the point of this training that we're working so hard on is across the board, irrespective of your race or ethnicity. As you very nicely said in the comments or very nicely said, you yourself may not realize the own unconscious, unconscious biases you have of your own culture and race. And we as a society, especially when we're dealing with very intimate things such as medical conditions, we need to make sure that that gets highlighted as well. So with this, these trainings that we really want to start doing in medical school, we want to do it across irrespective of one's gender, race, and ethnicity, because we that way we all are, I think, more cognizant and aware of how we handle uh, specific patient uh, uh, circumstances. And, you know, speaking of uh, the steps, the next steps to take action. We know the White House released a, a proclamation recognizing Black Maternal Health Week and vowed to take steps to address the maternal health crisis. Initial efforts include providing $6 billion for special supplemental nutrient program for women, infants, and children, better known as WIC, and allowing, allowing more than $250 million to implicit bias training, which we were just talking about, medical programs, early childhood development efforts and family planning and a family planning program. Dana, so the Biden administration is taking steps. We just, I just highlighted some of these steps. Is it going far enough to address the disparities that black mothers and pregnant women face? Yeah, I think we are, you know, really on a promising trajectory. Um, it was something that I had, you know, uh, celebrated as well, this proclamation of Black Maternal Health Week. I think it's such an, an important step um, from, you know, the highest office uh, to declare such a week of, you know, acknowledgement and, and activism and, and moving folks into action around this issue. Um, I'm also very proud of how, you know, the vice president has a history of championing for birth equity. Um, so I think we are going in the right direction. Um, I'm also very uh, excited about you know, the legislation both at the federal level and I'm in California, so here even at the uh, state level um, around trying to address these issues. So, you know, at the federal level, we have the, um, the Federal Momnibus Act that was reintroduced uh, this year, you know, a package of bills that is uh, addressing uh, a, a variety of different issues, you know, looking at social determinants of health and all of the things that are impacting um, Black women in particular. Um, and then, as I mentioned, at the state level here in California, we also have a version of the Momnibus Bill that is going through the state legislature right now. Um, and so when I see these uh, combined together, these efforts combined together, I think we're moving in the right direction. We still have a lot of work to do collectively, but I feel very hopeful about where we're going. 
Dr. Bond, I want to get your thoughts on the Biden administration's efforts to protect Black mothers, and particularly what the Mothers of Offspring Mortality and Morbidity Awareness Act, also known as MAMA Act, would do. I read that it would help save Black women from death linked to pregnancy and childbirth. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so as Dana mentioned, we've we've had such success, I think, at the legislative level um, since starting with this new administration with one, the declaration of Black Maternal Health Week, but beyond that, really emphasizing a lot of the bills that the momnibus had wanted to set forth. And now with the Mamas Act, you know, one thing that I think has been very um, encouraging for me has been that even with the American Rescue Plan Act, there's an emphasis on making sure we extend. Medicaid coverage. As it stands, 50% of our pregnancies are covered by Medicaid. And typically, after 60 days, the mother is without insurance. So extending this up to one year can be life-saving because we are actually seeing about a third of deaths and complications are occurring up to one year after the pregnancy. So I was very hopeful a few weeks back when Illinois not only made it an option, but actually made it a mandate that their state would take the lead in extending Medicaid coverage for these mothers in particular. So I am extremely hopeful and I know it's baby steps, but I do feel that we're going to get to the path, which again is to reduce this epidemic that we're seeing. Absolutely. And you know, we are running out of time, but I did quickly want to speak on uh, some of the steps that need to be taken so that we can all advocate around legislation, either locally or on a federal level, um, what do we need to know and what should we be petitioning our elected leaders to pass at this time, Dana? Yeah, um, as I mentioned, you know, I think it's really important for folks to understand sort of what is happening uh, as close to home as possible. So whether that is, you know, down to the county level um, and county policies and legislation that are moving forward to, you know, your state level, um, understanding what is moving through, you know, the legislature within the state where you live uh, and really becoming actively engaged with that where possible. I also really like to encourage folks to um, get engaged, uh, as I said, as close to home. So uh, there's so many different amazing you know, organizations, Black-led organizations uh, that are doing this work on the ground that are, you know, really uplifting sort of cultural um, practices in the way that we do the work. So I would encourage folks to get involved with what is happening, you know, close to home. I have the great privilege of leading uh, a very large initiative in LA County, uh, Black Cherished Futures for Black Moms and Babies. Um, working on this very issue with hospitals, with health systems, the public health department, payers and others. So um, I would love to you know, have folks become engaged in the work uh, and really continue to just keep an eye on what is happening as this uh, moves forward. Absolutely. And on top of that, Dr. Bond, you're actually going to be speaking at a roundtable discussion that addresses the Black maternity health crisis and some other things powered by the American Heart Association. Can you speak about this upcoming event and how it is also part of the solution to ending this crisis? Absolutely. So I'll be representing the Association of Black Cardiologists, where we've actually done a lot of efforts in this space as well, conjointly with the American Heart Association. But this will be a panel discussion amongst myself as a cardiologist, a few of my 
colleagues in the cardiology field as well as obstetricians and our really target objective is to raise the awareness of what the issue is in the black um, maternal crisis, but also the Native American crisis as well. We know that Native American communities also are about three to four times more likely to die during pregnancy and that postpartum period. And not just raise the awareness of the why, but more importantly, talk about the solutions that you can learn about. So even not if not at a legislative or advocacy level, just advocating for yourself as an individual when you're seeing these clinicians. So that is Tuesday, May 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern and it's complimentary and it will be live on their YouTube page. And we look forward to hopefully seeing you all there. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Bond and Dana. We appreciate the insight that you shared today with our audience. And now before we end the show, I just wanted to pay tribute to the Black Mothers in our Black Women Rise segment. As we celebrate our mothers, let's not forget about the crisis of care that Black birthing parents are facing during COVID-19. The maternal mortality rate for Black women is around three times that of white women, regardless of income, education, or geographical location. And despite the advances that we've made in reproductive technology and all the initiatives we have around motherhood, our current system does not protect black women who are pregnant or who have recently given birth, either during the pregnancy, during the childbirth or postpartum. And it's time that we speak up and advocate for black women. We need to be advocating for universal health care that will go a long way in actually helping them. We need to be advocating for expanding paternal leave. We need to be uh, advocating for community centers and, and birthing centers that include coverage for doulas and midwives. Instead of just honoring our mothers, grandmothers, and aunties with Mother's Day cards and flowers, let's show them that we really care by taking action to protect the lives of black mothers. And on that note, I wanna thank all of you for joining us for another episode of Be Heard Talk with Selena Hill. Thank you so much for the engagement support. Please remember to support us at buymeacoffee.com slash beheardtalk. Your support will give us the support we need to amplify the issues and causes that you care about. Until next Sunday, take care.